today's um, Bible reading is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 to 19. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, it is much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. But if you are in an insult because of the name of Christ. Sorry. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then... Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Thanks very much, Emily. Um, do keep that passage open in front of you. My name is Josh. I'm on staff here, um, and we're going to um, spend some time looking at that. Um, there's some details on the screen that the address of christchurchliverpool.org forward slash transcript if you want an English copy um, and hopefully if you want a printed Farsi copy you've been able to get hold of one of those but do ask a steward if you are still in need of any of that. Um, let's pray before we come to this. Dear Father, we, we thank you for all the encouragement that this passage will give us um, but we um, pray that you would help us to take this on board and not to, um, not to shy away from the suffering that it describes. Uh, we pray that you'd help us to really be convinced today of your goodness and your protection. Um, and that today would be when we really um, are prepared for stepping out to live for you in this world. We pray that by your spirit you would speak to us and change us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to imagine you've got a friend who is a really big fan of Mo Farah. Mo Farah is a, a marathon runner, a bit of a British hero. He's an Olympian. He's won lots of medals, gold medals. And imagine you've got a friend who really is a fan of Mo Farah. And um, your friend wants to do everything Mo Farah does. So your friend decides to take up running. Your friend decides to dress like Mo Farah and gets sleeves with nothing else, just sleeves, and starts to dress like Mo Farah and um, watches all the videos of Mo Farah um, running the race and models their running style on Mo Farah. And then they enroll in a marathon. And so your friend is running a marathon. And after three or four miles, maybe five or six, maybe 10 miles, they start to feel really, really bad. They start to be exhausted. They are out of breath. They can barely catch their breath. Their, their chest is tight. They are sweating. 
Their feet are sore with blisters. Uh, they're just exhausted all over. <clears throat> and maybe for the purpose of the illustration, you're watching from the crowd. And they come over to, the crowd, to you in the crowd and they say, what's going on? This is painful. I'm 10 miles into a marathon. And my body is just exhausted. I'm sore from head to toe. I set my life out to follow Mo Farah. And we know, all know he's great. He's a national treasure. We made him a sir. So I'm doing a good thing. Everyone says running's good for you. This is meant to be good, but I am absolutely exhausted. I'm in so much pain. What's going on? What do you say to your friend? I wonder whether you'd say, well, you do know that you're running a marathon, right? You do know that you're, you're doing what Mo Farah did. He ran a marathon, you're running a marathon. He's had to put his body through this pain as well. He might have done that in training. Every morning, every day, doing this, putting, testing his body to the limits. And then he comes to the marathon day, and he does it all again, and goes through the same pain, gets the same blisters on the same bits of his heels as you're doing. You said you wanted to follow in Mo Farah's footsteps. Well, I think this is what's happening. Well, this section of the letter of 1 Peter that hopefully you've got open in front of you, this addresses the question that the first Christians uh, would have had when they encountered what Peter has been talking about all along in his letter, when they encounter really bad suffering. And he's not talking about any old suffering, the suffering that all of us experience, a runny nose or fail a driving test or something like that. They're encountering rejection that comes left, right and center because they put Jesus first in front of people who really don't want Jesus in their lives at all. Their family are suspicious. People heap abuse on them. And these Christians are asking that same question as a marathon runner. Why am I feeling this way? Why is it so hard? Why am I suffering? And we're going to need answers to those kind of questions too over the next week. Or it might be for you over the next month or next few months or maybe over the next year. As we encounter more and more suspicion and accusation and hatred if we choose to live the way the Bible teaches. So when following Jesus means life becomes painful, this passage has got three things that make sense of your suffering. If you follow Jesus, it's going. <laughs> you're going to have to be on this and listen. I think all of, this, all of them will be like this with the overlapping um, thing. It says, if you follow Jesus, dot, 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 Suffering is a sign of following. Uh, so Peter's answer to the Christians is a bit like your answer to your marathon running friend, except a lot more gentle. He's saying, you're suffering because you're walking the path Jesus walked. You wanted to follow where he went, and this is the path that he took. So, you know, this is to be expected. This is exactly what happened to him. But he's not quite as blunt as you might be to your marathon runner friend. He doesn't say, come on. What did you expect? He's really gentle. He recognizes that this question is coming from a place of pain. But importantly, he also recognizes that pain isn't their biggest problem. It's being surprised. He says, verse 12, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come on you to test you. As though something strange is happening to you. And I think there's a really great 
pastoral insight Peter gives us here, that when Christians suffer because of the way they're living, living for Jesus, it's not the suffering that causes people to walk out on their faith. It's the surprise. Imagine your marathon runner. And they're running the marathon, they get this pain in their side. You and I know it's a stitch, but they don't know what it is. It's a surprise to them. They just feel this deep pain in their side. And they're surprised, and they think, I'm out of breath, I'm sweating, I'm hot, I've got deep pain in my side. All of these are signs that something is badly wrong. And your friend's going to head straight off the course and straight into the medical tent and say, I have to stop this, because they're surprised that this would come. But contrast that with another marathon runner who knows that this is to be expected. Well, they feel the same suffering. They've got the same blisters, the same out-of-breathness in their side. But they carry on running because they say, well, this is what I knew would happen because I'm running a marathon. You see that it's not the suffering that's caused the person to stop. It's being surprised. I think this is really important for you and I. Might it be that we would be so surprised to hear the whispers or the accusations or the hatred or the labels people might call us because we're living for Jesus? Might we be so surprised that that would happen that we would, when we encounter that, we'd start to think, but is this now worth it? And we do see that happen in church quite a lot, and maybe not in exactly the same situation, but we see a number of times when somebody uh, experiences a really good time growing as a Christian here, friends and community, people who are like them, people who share the same life stage as them, and they move to another context where they don't have that same community, they don't have people their age, and suddenly, more isolated, and being a Christian is the one factor in their life that makes it hard to settle. Being a Christian is the one factor in their life that means that they, they feel almost, they need to be secretive about that, to find out what, it, what they really do believe. As vulnerable and isolated, what the people think of them becomes key to whether they're gonna settle, whether they're accepted, whether they find friends, even whether they find the person that they meet they want to marry. And so now they've got a decision to make, whether they live for Jesus in their new context, live for him and that brings on the pain of having to be embarrassed in front of others or maybe making not making the friends they might do or maybe not even in, uh, maybe not even meeting the person they would have hoped to have met or do they head for the medical tent and it's out of surprise that now living for Jesus is costly because of that surprise well they do head for that medical tent and they say well I didn't expect this being a Christian is the one factor in my life now that's making it really hard, and I don't want that. And a few months down the line, they're not following Jesus, not because of the suffering. People can take that suffering, but because of the surprise that that's what it costs. And Peter says this partly so that none of us would, would go down that route. The sense in which it says in verse 12, the ordeal has come to test you. Don't read that word test and think that God is some sort of cruel school teacher who loves to throw exams at people, or he's a kind of needy and always needs you to prove your love for him. The suffering tests whether what you 
have in your Christian life is a kind of a happy, comfortable, cozy little life, and Christianity is a nice part of that. Or whether being a Christian is a commitment to follow the way Jesus went, and you know the way he went, and it was to pain, and that you walk. Suffering is a test. Now, but he does say this so that people who are suffering are encouraged. He says, listen, it's not something strange. It's not like the wheels have fallen off. This is exactly where you'd expect to be. So actually, rejoice. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. For the marathon runner, that stick in their side is sort of a good sign. I mean, I don't know. Some marathoners here might say, no, 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 it's bad. You haven't trained enough. I don't know. But it's a good sign. You haven't given up. As that marathon runner runs on the sidelines who's had because they were surprised at how much it would hurt well they carries on and thinks well they gave up I'm still in the race and I've still got my stitch but I'm glad not glad that I've got my stitch but my stitch is a, a pain in my side that shows me that I'm still running this race and I'm still doing the right thing I'm on the right track as much as it shows you that you are following Jesus you're doing the things that your hero Following, you're doing the things that he did. If you find it hard to be a Christian in the world around you because your conscious tension there, because the way you live is different to others, you find that hard, that's a sign of life. I want you to be encouraged by that, to take that away. Peter says he wants you to rejoice in that. He gives us another reason to be encouraged, verses 14 to 16, if you can make sense of this one. Have a guess. <clears throat> if you follow Jesus, it says, you are honored even in shame. You are honored even in shame. It's great that he talks about sh- being ashamed um, in, in verse 16, because shame is a massive part of our culture. And I know that shame is a massive part of uh, lots of other cultures outside of our culture as well, but in two different ways. And I'm aware that there are people here today who are from cultures where the idea of honor and the idea of shame is just woven into every bit of how you relate to other people. Honor and shame is a big part of how you relate to your country or your family. I know that uh, it's not just that if you do something, make a decision as a Christian that your family disapproves of, it's not just that they would get angry with you. It's not just that that would lead to an argument. I do understand that actually that that would bring shame on your family and that would be difficult for you and that would be a source of shame for you. And perhaps you're here today and you're not from a Christian family but you are from one of those cultures and you can live as a Christian here and you're finding that this is manageable but you know that when you go back home there will be on you and on your family because you've chosen to not follow their religion but follow Jesus. And maybe you're here, you're not a Christian, but you're from one of those cultures. And for you, maybe this is the thing that holds you back. You think, I do believe in Jesus. I would love to follow Jesus. But while I'm here, that can work. But if I tell my parents, well, what's that going to do? Not just for me, but the shame it brings on the family. Shame is a big, big thing for some cultures. And it's a big thing in our culture as well. We don't talk about it quite so much. 
But as of course we've been going through one Peter, Peter's been talking about, um, imagine, say, what Morris was doing in the kids' talk. There are some things that we think are right, but Peter says you'll get in trouble for them. Well, I've been wondering, what, what, where does the rubber hit the road? What kind of context do we find doing good is met with people saying, but that's wrong? And maybe you can come up with your own, but it occurred to me that maybe where this happens most of all is where doing good is framed by others as letting them down. So I've got two examples that have come to me this last couple of weeks um, from people that I've met. Um, one is there's a, a person who works in a workplace and they've got a colleague who's very difficult. And all of the other colleagues want to talk about her behind her back. And this Christian friend knows that's not the right thing to do. And so they want to say to their colleagues, oh, let's not do that. Let's not, let's not talk about it behind her back. That is harsh. You can't defend herself. Let's not do that. But the problem is his colleagues need to know that he's on their side. <laughs> they need to know they're all in this together. They're all struggling with this one particular colleague. And, and they need to know that he's there going to listen to them. He's on their side. He's got their corner. He's not on her side, but on their side. And so if he just says, listen, let's not talk about it behind her back, they're going to say, mate, you've let us down. We're in this together, right? Let's, we stick together. And now you're just not letting us talk about her behind her back. Another example is where uh, somebody works in a place where they make goods to sell to customers, but sometimes they're not ready in time, and they're told, well, just send an email and just make up a reason, just say we've got a power cut, or there's a virus going around everyone, we're all ill. Just make up a reason to put them off. And if they were to say no, <laughs> no, listen, that's not true. I'm just going to say we didn't, we didn't get to it. Then people are going to say, look, you're letting the team down. You're bringing shame on us. You think what you're doing is right, but in fact what it does is it casts shame on us. Those are two examples where I think in our culture, where we don't talk about honour and shame quite as much as others, but we still do, we are told to be ashamed because we're doing good. And here's where Peter speaks into that. He says in verses 14 to 16, particularly verse 16, he says, but don't be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Actually, in feeling the shame, there's an honor that outweighs that. He says, praise God that you bear that name. Don't be ashamed, but you actually are honored greatly. Last week was Remembrance Sunday, um, and on Remembrance Sunday, we Remember people who've died in wars, and particularly people who've died in wars to defend our country. And if you're not from our country, I'm sure that there are people in your country who've died to defend yours. And it's good to have a time to honour that. But many of the people who died in wars died in what you could describe as indignity. They didn't die in a blaze of glory. They didn't die winning the battle. They were not called by their name, they were just a number. And they died because they ran onto a battlefield because someone told them to, and then they got shot, and then that was it. And there was nobody nearby who could pick up their body and bury it. There's nobody nearby to mourn for them because their friends were shot too. It was just anonymous. Just a number who fell on a field. And that seems like it's indignified. But why did we do, we do Remembrance Sunday last week? Because there's an honour to that. We want to say there's an honour beyond that shame. In fact, what they did that seemed small and insignificant and 
and undignified was actually a great honor because it's been the part of the big picture is it defended the country and the war was won. We want to honor these people, and that's why Peter can say, Don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear the name. He says, It will feel like shame, but I want you to know that you're given an even greater honor than the shame it feels like. The shame that, you do, that people want to make you feel for letting the team down or betraying your family. Well, it's not that. It's not a shame. It's an honor that you bear the name. The honor is this. Jesus is proud to give you his name. He is pleased to call you his. And as if that's not enough, Peter gives us another assurance about our suffering. And it's this. If you follow Jesus, this is as bad as it gets. He starts in verse 12 with words like fiery ordeal and test. And that brings to mind what happens in fire that tests things. It brings to mind the idea that the Bible uses quite a lot of a refiner's fire. Now, I admit I've never been to a modern metal gold refinery, but the Bible talks about it so much that I guess I understand the ancient way of purifying metal better than I understand the modern way. Um, and in the ancient way, you'd mine for gold, you'd get the rocks out of the ground, and you'd be sure that there's gold in there somewhere, and sometimes you could see a little bit of it. Maybe you couldn't see much, but you'd put it into the refiner's fire. The fire is so hot that it burns away what is not gold, and it leaves behind what is gold. And it means what comes out of that fire is, is pure. It means it's burned away all the stuff that shouldn't be there. There's three things a fire does. It tests to see what's there. It's a way of purifying out what is good, and in the process it destroys what doesn't belong. And that's a good model, a good lens through which to see how Peter thinks of suffering. He says it's time for judgment to begin with God's household. He means that God will bring this, he, he will put everyone through this refining fire. This test will come to everyone to see what you've got. But God's not doing that because he's just angry he's lost it and he says oh i'm going to bring on punishment on everyone he's doing this for christians in love he's not bringing punishment on you but refining you he's not bringing punishment on you just an aside um have you ever wondered that what you're going through is a punishment for something you've done it's amazing even christians who know the bible well who've been christians for many years been Christians for 10, 20, 50 years, still have this instinct to start to wonder when things go terribly bad, is God punishing me for something I've done? When we go through a great loss, a long illness, or a family member gets sick and dies, we all start to wonder, is there something that I've done that's brought this on? Is there something that I could have done differently that God wouldn't have punished me like this for? The Bible consistently says, though, clearly, no, your suffering isn't a punishment for what you've done. But we read here that it says it, judgment begins. But it's not the punishment of God that you're experiencing. It's judgment in the sense of it's a fire that refines and tests. We feel the heat, and that purifies us into what God is making us. It's your opportunity, as you feel the heat, 
to see about yourself, whether you're the person who's going to be surprised and give up, or whether you know that this is the path of following Jesus. But Peter sees this as a good thing that Christians are going through, because, he says, it's better than the alternative. He, he goes to a proverb which says, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? When it says it's hard, he's not saying that God finds it hard to save, um, to save sinners. He means when we are saved, it is hard because we then go on living in a world which rejects Jesus. But he says, if that's hard for us, and yet we bear the name. It's hard for us, and yet we've got hope of a great glory at the end. He mentions that in verse 13, when the glory of Christ is revealed. If it's even hard for us, well, surely, Peter says, it's even worse for those he, who he describes in verse 17 as not obeying the gospel of God. That means people who know about Jesus but decide not to listen. Peter wants to encourage believers who are, who are suffering because he says when God's fire comes on them, when the judgment comes on them, well, it'll burn up everything. It means for the Christian, this that you're going through is the worst it'll ever be. It's a refining fire. Out of the far end of it, you come out purified. God brings you into his glory and you spend the rest of eternity enjoying his goodness and his grace and his face and it only ever gets better and better and it means if you're for somebody who rejects jesus well this right now is the best it's ever going to be because after this comes the fire of god's judgment and everything's burned up and you spend forever knowing that god is angry and experiencing the pain of that. Now, very important to remember here, and this is a great comfort to us, that the reason Christians pass through this fire purified is not because we do a great job of doing good works for God. It's never been because we are better than anyone else. It's actually because we bear the name. That's why we rejoice that we bear the name. It's because we have Jesus' stamp on us. And that's all. That's the only difference between those in this verse who are the righteous who are saved and the ungodly who die. The only difference is that our faith is in the fact that Jesus died for us. Our faith is in the fact that we're not earning any of this. Our faith is in the fact that we belong, we are not our own, but we belong to God, body and soul. Our faith is in the fact that if we just put ourselves in under Jesus' name, we just trust in him we just identify with him we bear his name our faith is that because of him we pass through refined it means if you're someone here today and you're not a christian then everything we've been saying has been a lot going on a lot being said but it comes down to this what will happen in that fire but there's still a chance, there's still an opportunity for you to bear the name, to identify with Jesus, to say, well, I want his name to be my name. I want his life to be counted as my life, his death to be counted as my punishment. Then you bear his name, not because you've gotten any better, but because you sheltered in him. But if you'd like to not have that, if you really feel like you've got to take this on yourself, then Peter is clear that this fiery judgment comes on everybody and even though right now this world is for you and things might be okay you will feel the heat one day 
this is the best thing, and this is the last thing, and then it's God's judgment. For those of us who are Christians, we cling on to our faith that we bear the name because it's only through that that we get through the suffering. It's that that we cling to as we follow Jesus into dark places. And he gives us two things, two quite simple things to, to have as a take home. Peter is really helpful. He gives us last, the only two things I think that we can really do if this is the case. And they're brief and we'll finish with these two things. First, he says in verse 19, so commit yourself to your faithful creator. By commit, um, it's not the word I, whenever I've played sport in the past, you have a halftime team talk and people say, come on guys, let's commit to that. Let's see your commitment. Let's commit to the tackles. He's not saying commit to God by like, you know, gritting your teeth and going for it. It means commit like in trust. In the ancient world, back in those days, they wouldn't have had a bank. They wouldn't have had banks you can put your money in. And so if you've got some uh, valuable objects in your house and maybe a bag of money because it's your life savings, if you're going to go on a journey, go and visit someone in a far country, you don't want to take it with you because you might get robbed. But you don't leave it in your house because it's vulnerable. So what you do is you take it to a neighbor and you commit it to them. And that's what Peter's saying. You, you take your commit it to God and you say, I think you've got me. I think you can look after me in this. I think in all of this, if you have got me, I'll be okay. Has God got you? Has God got your back? The first Christians who read this committed themselves to God. And some of them were taken to the stake, a real literal fiery ordeal that burned them up. And yet they weren't surprised. They never thought, what's happening? God hasn't got my back. When these Christians went to the stake, they still had confidence that God would never fail them. They said, I'd rather this fire than God's fire. In fact, this is going to be a way of getting through to Jesus, a way of passing through this life and coming into the glory at the end. It means that we can commit ourselves to God, even to death. Now, I hope nobody in this room will have to do that, but we mustn't be surprised even at that point because we can commit ourselves to God. And in the meantime, continue to do good. He says continue. Think of the marathon runner again. Continuing is what a marathon runner does, right? Continue. Just take the next step. Don't give up. Don't bypass the heat now by giving up, by stopping the fight and letting temptation win. Give, Peter's given us a perspective that shows how dangerous that is. We'll face the heat sooner or later, so don't duck it now. There's a, a guy called Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century preacher in London, said an ounce of sin will hurt you more than 10 million tons of suffering. So don't give up doing good by turning away. No, carry on. Carry on doing what you're doing. Do good in the face of people saying that it's wrong. Carry on doing what you're doing when it's right, but people around you don't like it. Carry on doing what you're doing, even if people say you're letting us down. Now, I've never run a marathon, so I can't quite give advice on that. But I'd imagine somebody who finishes a marathon, if you say, how did you, how did you finish that? They would say, well, I carried on. And that's what Peter says. Carry on. Don't be surprised at the pain. Trust that this is an end, and at the end is glory. So what we do in the meantime is commit ourselves to God. Keep on going. And that's all.
Let's pray. Dear Father, we want to ask that you would look after us and be with us. We want to commit ourselves to you, to entrust ourselves to you. We want to express that we think that you've got us. We have confidence that you can see this through, even if we experience real, real pain, real, real rejection. We want to commit ourselves to you, to trust that what happens in our life is, is your will, to trust that what happens in our life is not more than you can handle. Lord, particularly we pray that this would help us to carry on, especially where perhaps we're in situations where it's not clear what the suffering that this is calling us to is. And we pray particularly in our situations where our lives are not full of hatred and rejection and pain, that this would be something that prepares us today for the day that it comes. We pray that um, we would be all the more ready to speak truth and do good when the time comes. And we pray particularly for those of us who um, know that this is going to come to, we're going to be at the sharp end of this this week. And pray that your spirit would be reminding us of these truths, of the encouragement Peter gives us, that out of this church might come many people who don't give up, but continue entrusting ourselves to you and doing good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.